Let's change up the way you watch baseball. Introducing Change Up, a brand new live whip around show across the league, brought to you by MLB and DAZN. Jump in and out of the best places they happen and get expert analysis from hosts who bring a fresh personality and new perspective to the game. It's on every night and available on nearly any device, smart TVs, tablet, mobile, and gaming consoles. Getting set up with DAZN is easy. Just download the DAZN app in the Apple or Android app store, sign up by creating an account, and then start watching across any of your devices. That's DAZN, D-A-Z-N. Hello and welcome to The Ringer MLB Show. My name is Michael Bauman. I'm a staff writer at The Ringer. Uh, We've actually got a lot of ground to cover this week, so let's get started right now with Zach Cram. All right, uh, we're going to kick things off the way we do every week with Zach Cram. Zach, how are you doing? Hello. There's a lot of Red Sox feelings floating around today. Uh, So we're going to talk about first about uh, Dustin Pedroia's... um, press conference from Memorial Day. We're also going to talk, uh, sort of look back at the life and times of Bill Buckner, uh, who also passed on on Monday. Um, but let's uh, kick it off with, with Pedroia, who there was, he held a, a press conference. He's been on the 60-day DL since time immemorial, uh, 36 years old, contract running down, and he uh, was asked if he will play again. He said, I'm not sure. So, uh, yeah, where does this leave Dustin Pedroia? Yeah, over the last two seasons, he has played in nine total games. He has three hits and 31 at-bats with a negative 24 OPS plus, which sounds like it shouldn't be possible. And I honestly didn't really remember him playing this year uh, because it was such a short time. And it's, you know, one of those things where guys, once they reach their early to mid thirties and they're of maybe a certain body type at a certain position, their bodies just break down. And Pedroia is getting up there in age, but he had his last good season at, in 2016 when he was only 32. And he basically hasn't added anything since then. And he was the last connection to the start of really this Red Sox run of this century where he played for the 2007 team. But David Ortiz is gone now. Everyone else is gone, basically. So it's Pedroia as the connective tissue. And now his career might be over. Yeah, he is uh, part of a a class of second basemen who all came up in the mid 2000s who were sort of I mean, the way I think about them is the Chase Utley type where they are like that prototypical scrappy uh gamer type, but also incredibly talented hitters and incredibly gifted athletes. You know, Utley and Pedroia are two of the most obvious examples. Ian Kinsler, I would loop uh, loop into this. Uh, Jason Kipnis. And we're seeing those guys sort of peter out. You know, Utley just recently retired. It looks like Pedroia is headed that way. Ian Kinsler is probably near the end. And uh, yeah, the interesting thing about this is they're all incredibly consequential uh figures in, in baseball history in terms of their involvement in the World Series. Um, you know, Pedroia won an MVP award. Utley, you know, could have come close or came close a couple times. Um, and it looks like all, you know, it, at least uh, Utley, um, Kinsler and Pedroia are all going to end up just a little bit short of the Hall of Fame longevity, even though they were definitely, you know, Hall of Fame players at their peaks. Uh, not to, you know, make this Dustin Pedroia segment about other players. But I think it's interesting that, you know, that class is uh, is sort of going by the wayside right now. Yeah, Pedroia really fulfills that old line that you make the Hall of Fame in your 30s. 
because he was close to a Hall of Fame trajectory, but just wasn't able to add either accounting stats or other awards or, uh, you know, to his advanced stats either once he reached 33. And that doesn't, or at least I hope it shouldn't take away from what he accomplished in his career because he was one of the best Red Sox players of a generation and a very important generation in Red Sox history. And even now you could see it with the reporting yesterday that there is a lot of emotion surrounding his presumed departure from the game. The Red Sox are kind of moving on now. It's a weird time for the team because after starting off this season so poorly, they're playing really well. And Michael Chavis, who's been filling in a lot at second base as a replacement, is one of the best hitting rookies in baseball right now. So it's kind of yielding to the next generation, but maybe fans aren't ready to say goodbye yet. Yeah, and what I the reason I brought all that up is I hope that Pedroia, you know, it's it's hard to project how we'll remember baseball thirty years from now, but you know, you see this every generation. There's a few players who end up at like fifty wins above replacement who, you know, had a top like one or two top three MVP finishes, um, and were memorable members of of uh, championship teams that sort of fade away because they don't make the Hall of Fame. But you know, I. Pedroia was just an incredibly consequential. I think he he will, you know, he'll go down as an incredibly consequential historical figure uh, just because of his involvement in this long, you know, like you said, he is, he and David Ortiz were the through lines in those, you know, four Red Sox World Series championships of the, the 21st century. And, uh, you know, I, I just hope that he, because he, you know, he's at this point we're looking at, he's probably not going to be, um, be able to have that Derek Jeter type farewell tour, you know, and, uh, you know, I, I hope that doesn't mean that he fades away into the historical ether. Not only that, but I think he has an interesting relationship with fans of other teams. Like I was watching, uh, one of the Yankees games in uh, a doubleheader this weekend, and they were talking about Pedroia on the broadcast and about how even Yankees fans kind of had to respect what he was able to do in sort of a Jeterian way. And I'm not sure how far that extends, but I think because honestly of Pedroia's size, it was sort of Jose Altuve before Jose Altuve. And the fact that he was not just a consistent hitter, but a great defender, he did a lot of things well and he always hustled and I think uh, garnered a lot of respect and excitement from fans because of those reasons. One other uh, bit of his historical um, significance that I want to pop in here. This is obviously not far from the most significant thing he did, but he's the reason Mookie Betts is in right field. Uh, he and Jackie Bradley, you know, coming mm-hmm. up, um, coming up, Mookie Betts was the second baseman. And uh, when he came up, Pedroia was, I think, the Betts debut in 2014. So Pedroia would have been uh, would have been 30. And the Red Sox figure, well, you know, this has been our our second baseman, our franchise second baseman for forever. We're going to have to move bets and he can't play in center because Bradley's a better defender. And so he's been put in that weird right field corner and put up freakish defense, advanced defensive numbers, which I think, you know, may have swung the, the MVP discussion, uh, certainly have, uh, made, have benefited bets in the, you know, the bets versus Mike Trout debate, uh, insofar as as we take that debate uh, seriously over the past few years. So I wonder, you know, it's it's interesting that like the butterfly flaps its wings and, you know, causes a hurricane halfway around the world. This is sort of the, the thing we're looking at with Pedroia and Mookie Betts. Do you remember last year when Betts played one game at second base and we got all 
baseball nerd excited about it, and I he wrote never like twenty five hundred words about how he ought to play second base in the World Series. I wanted that so bad. Alas, maybe later this year, if Jackie Bradley starts hitting again or something, that can reassert itself. All right, uh, one other. Um piece of Red Sox news, as I alluded to, Bill Buckner uh, died over the weekend at the age of 69. Um, he is, of course, most famous for the, having the ball go through his through his legs in the, the 1986 World Series uh, to end game six when the Red Sox were um, one strike away. Uh, this is obviously what he's most remembered for. I think the big winners, in addition to, to Mookie Wilson and the New York Mets, were Calvin Chiraldi, who... Uh, you know, the, the game should have never gotten to that point if Chiraldi had shut it down the way he was supposed to. Um, Buckner, of course, this was just the most visible moment in a 22-year career. And, I, you know, it's, there's been a lot of relitigation over the past couple of days uh, over the way Buckner was treated in the media at the time and the way that we, you know, allow that one big narrative moment to to really define a player's career. Yeah, it reminded me of Mickey Owen, who might be an unfamiliar name for a lot of people now, but he was a Brooklyn Dodgers catcher. And when he died in 2005, the New York Times obituary was headlined as follows. Mickey Owen dies at 89, allowed fateful pass ball. And the first sentence of his obituary was Mickey Owen, the Brooklyn Dodger catcher remembered for a misadventure in the 1941 World Series that propelled the Yankees to the championship, blah, blah, blah. And then the start of the obituary was a lengthy and detailed summary of Mickey Owens past ball against the Yankees in the world series. And it is not a unique tradition in baseball history to have these people whose names we remember only for one moment. We all know Fred Merkel's name for just one reason. We know Ralph Bronca just for one reason. And Buckner was perhaps the most famous among that group. I remember when I was very young, I just knew him as a really tragic tale. I didn't know anything about his career. I didn't know that he had 2,700 hits, that he never struck out, that he debuted as a teenager. Uh, I only knew him for that one play. And I think it's really sad that that's how he gets remembered and taught to a lot of young baseball fans. But I don't know, this might be naive, but I wonder if the reaction I saw yesterday were a lot of people were commenting, don't remember him just for this one play, remember him for all these other reasons. Is that a sign that baseball is becoming more considerate as as an industry in this perspective? Like with Chris Davis's hitless streak earlier this year, there were a lot more I feel sorry for Chris Davis opinions than wow, Chris Davis sucks. So I'm not sure if that's a widespread pattern, but it struck me yesterday that you didn't really need to construct uh you didn't really need to attack a straw man because there weren't people actually voicing those opinions. Yeah. And I think in the case of Buckner specifically, there was a lot of, you know, there was a lot of coverage when he came back to Fenway after they won in 2004. And, you know, it, I think the, a lot of the he discussion didn't was till Fenway until after they won in 2007. Was it 2007? Yeah. Um, they needed yeah, to win so, twice. So it, I, there was a lot of like, but the discussion around that was, um, you know, Bill Buckner forgiving, the Red Sox fans and the media who made him out to be uh, this villain. I think we have not just in baseball, but I think in society, we've gotten more, more thoughtful about um, the way we talk about athletes and clutchness and, and people who fail in big moments, you know, that it's not 
a moral failing that this is just how the game goes. And I think, you know, that's not the way everybody looks at it, certainly, but I think we've, we've got a little bit smarter and I think a lot more compassionate, uh, in the way that we, you know, we recognize that that these people are, are human beings. And I think a lot of, um, you know, it's not just something that you're, I think baseball and sports in general feel a lot more present. Now, they're not like if it's just on the radio or in the newspaper or on, you know, some fuzzy uh, over the air TV broadcast, uh, it does. It almost doesn't feel real. And, you know, if you're seeing it on your big screen TV or seeing it streamed from 35 different angles and discussed in dozens of news outlets and the the athlete himself, you know, we saw, you know, we've seen athletes who who didn't come up in, in big moments, you know, take to to social media to. Um, you know, apologize for it. And I think, you know, usually when that happens, the the reaction is is fairly positive. We saw this with you, Darvish, in the World Series a couple years ago, Joel Embiid in the um, in the NBA playoffs a couple weeks ago. You know, and I think if, you know, I, I think just generally the, the sports media is a lot less, sports media and you know, baseball players, I, I think, are a lot, a lot less touchy and macho than they were in the 1980s, certainly less so than in, in the 1940s. Um, but I think, you know, it, we do, I, I don't know if the way we look at this is, is completely healthy, but it's healthier than it was, you know, at at the beginning of our lifetimes. And it's kind of a silly thing to say, but it's where you remember that sports are almost always a zero sum game that Mm -hmm. if someone achieves an incredible feat, a game swinging hit that it comes at the expense of someone else. And a lot of times we don't need to focus on that. Uh, we can remember a game-winning home run without necessarily focusing on the pitcher. I don't know how many people could name the pitcher off whom David Freeze hit his famous home run, for instance. But in other cases, that's the main thing you remember. Uh, in the Mickey Owen obituary that I referenced, it ends with his quote, I would have been completely forgotten if I hadn't missed that pitch. And that's a weird thing you know, to think that Bill Buckner would have been anonymous, that the news could have come yesterday and I would have looked him up on baseball reference and thought, oh, this guy led the league in some categories. Why don't I know much about him? But instead, we know a lot about him for this very reason. Well, I draw, I draw a distinction there between, you know, giving up a home run is not necessarily making a mistake. And, you know, the person who gave up the home run is is uh, often like more of a trivia question than a goat. You know, and, you know, Ralph Branca and um, trying to think of who else, I, you know. Thinking back to the 1986 playoffs, Donnie Moore is sort of the exception to this, but yeah. that's just because of the the tragic way his own life uh, uh, unfolded and ended uh, after after that happened. Um, but you know, Mickey Owen and Buckner and Fred Snodgrass and and Fred Merkel, um, these are are players who like did something weird. You know, that's not routine. Giving up a home run is routine. That happens. Uh, but you know, letting that ball go through his legs is you know, it's so unusual and there's no, you know, there's, I don't know that there's anything like, uh, spectacularly clutch about what Mookie Wilson did, you know, grounding that ball to first base. It just happened to, to, you know, to take a, a, a favorable bounce for, for him and unfavorable for the Red Sox. And I think that, you know, the way that that attention's focused on, on those players who, who make championship deciding mistakes, um, is, uh, is different from, you know, people who, you know, who give up the home run, who are, they just fail instead of like screwing up, you know? Do you think that that's more common in baseball than other sports? Maybe this is 
getting too far afield of our podcast coverage. But if you think about other sports, there aren't as I think nearly as many players remembered for their singular gaffes and championship moments. Like I guess you had the J.R. Smith moment in the finals last year, but that's not the number one thing J.R. Smith is going to be remembered for, I don't think. And I think baseball, because <laughs> I will be- say that might be a bad example because if J.R. Smith hadn't done so many other weird things in his career, well, that sure. might, <laughs> but, but I, I think the discreetness of baseball's plays almost lends itself more I to that sort of memorialization. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to think of like, you know, what's Craig Elo supposed to do or, or, um, or Brian Russell, you know, when Jordan hits the game winning shot, like you, you know, you play defense and you just got beat. And that's sort of like the, um, the clutch home run thing that I was talking about earlier. So it's, you know, you've almost got to be Scott Norwood kicking. Uh, that's true. That whole, that whole bills team gets a bad rap. I think it's so <laughs> much more impressive to go to four super bowls and lose than it is to just go to one and win. But that's uh, I, I guess that's a, a teleological question. All right. So it's been sort of a, a bittersweet uh, weekend in, in terms of uh, the Red Sox. But, uh, you know, I hope. Well, you're going to be talking about the MLB draft in the next segment. So that'll be an exciting turn. We can dream on all the new players we're going to talk about in the future. Yeah, maybe one of the twelve hundred people drafted uh, next uh, next week, we'll go on to make a World Series deciding mistake. So, uh, all right. So we'll be right back with Teddy Cahill from Baseball America right after this. Thanks, Zach. Thank you. Support for today's show comes from Sonos. Sonos meticulously designs every speaker from the inside out. Their experts in acoustics and engineering even work with Oscar and Grammy winning producers, mixers, and artists to ensure an immersive listening experience. Getting started is easy. Just plug your speaker in and open the app and connect all your favorite streaming services. Start with one speaker and connect more over Wi-Fi whenever you're ready. All Sonos speakers and components work together so you can customize your sound system. You can also connect your TV or turntable to listen to everything you love. Now, my Sonos Beam came in a box. It's just like just like I just said, with a few cables. It fits nicely on my TV stand. I downloaded the app, plugged it in, and within a couple minutes, I was listening. It was like wearing glasses for the first time. The sound is so much clearer and richer than on my TV, and even with just the Beam, there's a lot of bass if you want it. Uh, I also didn't realize how convenient it would be to switch from TV to music to podcast to audiobooks, uh, all on this one speaker with just a press of a button on my phone. Uh, it feels like living in the future. So if you also want to live in the future, go to Sotos.com to learn more. All right. Uh, I am so excited for this next segment that Bobby has been making fun of me all week. Uh, but I, my next guest is Teddy Cahill from Baseball America. And we're going to talk about the NCAA tournament. Teddy, thanks for joining me. Absolutely. I, anytime we can get some college baseball talk onto this show, I mean, we got to jam it in there, right? I mean, this is my philosophy, but unfortunately, it is not uh, not a viewpoint that is shared by many here at the Ringer office. It does not help that all of the Ringer staffers teams uh, appear to have failed uh, to make this tournament. No South Carolina, no Mizzou. Um, Let's see. No Cal State Fullerton. It's a this is an interesting field. So what we're going to do is there are 16 regionals. Uh, You and I or I'm going to ask you. Uh, to spend one minute talking about each of them. So whatever the the big narrative, the player you need to watch, uh, the team you need to watch, you have one minute to to sell each sell me on each regional. So let's start the clock with Los Angeles. Uh, number one seed is UCLA. They're joined by Baylor, uh, Loyola Marymount, and 
uh, University of Nebraska Omaha, which is a college hockey team I know well, but not a college <laughs> baseball team I know anything about. Well, you know, UCLA here has been the number one team in America for 11 weeks, and now we can see whether they can do it in the postseason. Last time they were the number one overall seed was 2015. That did not go so well for the Bruins. So they're hoping that this year uh, is more of a, a typical year for a number one overall seed, and, and they can get out of their regional and, and move on and, and hopefully get to Omaha. And I think this team absolutely can do it. It's the number one team in the country for a reason. It's the best pitching staff in the country. Uh, they field at an incredibly high level. And they have, the, you know, UCLA, you might remember the 2013 national championship team with Adam Plutko. Uh, they didn't hit at all. This UCLA team hits. And so it's going to be very interesting to see them uh, in the postseason, they've dominated the Pac-12. They've dominated their, their schedule all season long. Uh, I would also note that Baylor has their catcher, Shailene Galeers. He'll be a top 10-ish pick uh, next week in the draft. So if you're prospect watching, Baylor is also a team to watch in this region. All right. Another bracket that's good for top draft pick catchers. That's Adley Rutschman and Oregon State in the Corvallis Regional. Uh, they're joined by three Midwestern teams, Creighton, Michigan, and Cincinnati. What should we look for there? Yeah, this is a Midwestern Regional hosted in Oregon. Uh, but Adley Rutschman is definitely what you're watching here. That's he's the 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 number one draft prospect in the in the country this year. Uh, he's probably going to win Golden Spikes and every other college player of the year award there is to win. He's the reigning College World Series MVP. He's hitting 400. He's an incredible catcher. Uh, and he's really put this Oregon State team on his back after they lost three players, uh, three position players in the top 40 picks of last year's draft. This team still pitches at a pretty high level. They're not quite as good as they, they have been in the past uh, couple years, but they're still a really good pitching team. And it's going to be about that and Adley Rutschman if they can get out of this region and, and move on to Super Regionals. Yeah, just for uh, context, Adley Rutschman is a catcher. He is hitting 427, 584, 772 uh, heading into the NCAA tournament. Next up, Oklahoma City. Uh, Oklahoma State uh, is the host. They're joined by UConn, Nebraska, coached by Darren Erstad and Harvard. Oklahoma State, one of the hottest teams in the country right now. They just won the Big 12 tournament in Oklahoma City. This regional should have been in Stillwater, but the rain and storms in Oklahoma over the last week uh, meant that they needed to move this to Oklahoma City. Uh, still going to be a great environment there, I would have to think. And you know, Oklahoma State just playing at a really high level right now. Not the most prospecty team out there, uh, but this is a, a group led by Josh Holiday that really knows how to win. Uh, they have a really fun outfielder in Carson McCusker, who's like 6'9", and he hits for a lot of power. Uh, so he's a fun player to watch. And it's just going to be interesting to see how this group carries the momentum they've built over the last month into the tournament. All right, and they're paired with the Lubbock Regional. Uh, Texas Tech and their big, beefy, hairy boys will host Dallas Baptist, who uh, is a program I really like a lot. Uh, Florida, who uh, snuck in at the very end, uh, sort of a down year for a national powerhouse, and Army West Point. Interesting region. Uh, Florida and Texas Tech have history from Omaha, uh, but I think if you're if you're watching this, you're you're watching Texas Tech's offense uh, in Lubbock. It is very difficult to beat Lubbock as a pitcher's park. The wind blow or a hitter's park, excuse me. Wind blows out there a lot, and Texas Tech has some big bats led by third baseman Josh Young. Again, a top ten, top fifteen type pick uh, next week in the draft. He hasn't been as incredible this year as he was a year ago. Uh, but he's still hitting 333, nine home runs. And excuse me, I should be saying Josh Young shortstop because he moved from third base to shortstop in the middle of the year. And that's a change that really has worked out for the Red Raiders. 
All right. Uh, next uh, bracket up is, or next regional, I should say, is Fayetteville, Arkansas, uh, defending national runner-up. They will host Cal TCU, uh, who I think they were the the big controversial bubble team uh, after the selection show yesterday, and Central Connecticut. Yeah, TCU, controversial pick to get in, last team to get in, uh, did not have a good RPI, uh, but them getting in does produce a really fun first-day matchup, uh, both for college baseball fans and for prospect towns. TCU has left-hander Nick Lodolo, who the Pirates drafted um, in the supplemental first round a few years ago, didn't sign, went to TCU, now is potentially the best college pitcher in the country. He'll be facing off against Cal, which has Andrew Vaughn, top five pick likely next week. He's the defending Golden Spikes winner, uh, first baseman, a lot of power. It'll be a lot of fun to see Lodolo and Vaughn going at it on the same field in Fayetteville on Friday. Zach Cram is a big Andrew Vaughn fan. I think he uh, he would pick him over Rutschman, which I think is a crazy take. But uh, you know, that, that Zach, he has, um, he has strong opinions. All right, uh, Oxford Regional. Uh, they're paired up with Arkansas. Ole Miss host, hosting Illinois, and then uh, we could get a Clemson versus Gamecocks matchup uh, uh, at some point in this regional, <laughs> except it's the Gamecocks of Jacksonville State who are the number four seed, to my immense disappointment. Yes, not the Gamecocks you were hoping to see, but no. Ole Miss uh, was upset at home last year in their regional by Tennessee Tech, the Cinderella story of last year's tournament. Um, Ole Miss had to work really hard last week at the SEC tournament just to get this home regional, and it was mildly controversial that they got it. Uh, ultimately, they were seeded 12th, so apparently the committee didn't feel that way. Uh, they had the number one recruiting class in the country a few years ago. This is kind of its last go with that group before they go into the draft. So guys like Thomas Dillard, Gray Kessinger, Cooper Johnson, those guys now, Will Etheridge, uh, Friday Night Starter, those guys are all going to be trying to, to make their mark and get this team uh, into Super Regionals after last year's disappointment. All right. Uh, next up, Baton Rouge. We have a familiar, uh, familiar regional host. You, you and I, I think, reacted about the same way to, to this because LSU is hosting uh, Arizona State, who uh, have Spencer Torkelson and Hunter Bishop, who are uh, favorites around these parts, uh, Southern Miss and Stony Brook. And the last time Stony Brook came to Baton Rouge, uh, they made history. They did. That was 2012. It was a super regional and Stony Brook beat the Tigers in Alex Box Stadium to go to Omaha. And fun fact, I do regional projections uh, or NCAA tournament projections all year at BaseballAmerica.com. And like two months ago, I projected this and LSU fans kind of lost it. Uh, So it's going to be interesting to see that this is not that Stony Brook team, though. So I think that what you're going to be watching here especially is Arizona State's power and how it plays in Alex Box Stadium, which is an offensive park. And so Arizona State brings in Hunter Bishop, uh, who is a potential top 10 pick this year, and Spencer Torkelson, who's a potential top five pick next year. Those guys both have incredible power, and they, they're they going to crush some home runs, I feel like, this weekend. And it's going to be fun to, to see those guys go at it against LSU and, and Southern Miss and Stony Brook. All right. Uh, they're paired with the Athens Regional. Lots of pairings of... Uh, potential intra-conference super regional. So how many is it? Like five out of eight? It is five, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, so Georgia had a big year in the SEC. They're hosting Florida Atlantic, Florida State, and Mercer. So you got to look first to Mike Martin at Florida State. He is retiring this year after 40 years. As Florida State's head coach, he is the all-time winningest coach in NCAA history, any sport, more than 2,000 wins. And 
He has never won a national title, though. So this is the last shot for Florida State under Mike Martin to go win a national title. The path is going to be difficult because Georgia is very good. And we shouldn't overlook FAU, who won the regular season in Conference USA. Georgia has perhaps the best pitching staff in the SEC, and that means it ranks very highly nationally. Emerson Hancock, their top pitcher, uh, is going to be in consideration to be the first overall pick in next year's draft. And then they have a lot of power just throughout the, the rest of the staff. So if Florida State's going to get it done, they're going to get it done the hard way in Athens. All right. That brings us to the other side of the bracket, uh, to Nashville, where Vanderbilt hosts Indiana State, McNeese, and Ohio State suppressed. Greg Beals does it again. The, the surprise run through the Big Ten tournament uh, leaves Ohio State as a fourth seed. Absolutely. Uh, personal note, Craig Beals uh, and I crossed paths at Ohio State a decade ago, and it has been fun to follow uh, what he's been doing at Ohio State. Uh, but here it is uh, it is not about Ohio State. It is about J.J. Bleday and, and, and Vanderbilt. Um, you know, it's going to Bleday. If Rutschman wasn't having the year he was having, if he wasn't who he was, Bleday would be your national player of the year favorite. Leads the country in home runs. He has 26. And you may have seen last week at the SEC tournament that Derek Jeter uh, flew up from Miami, brought half of his front office, it felt like, to watch Bleday. Um, and so that Bleday leads this team. It's a really, really good team, though. Uh, SEC champs, great top to bottom. Uh, but Bleday is, is the star. and he might go fourth overall to the Marlins, but he's certainly going to be a top 10 pick uh, in the draft this year. All right. And that regional is paired with the Morgantown regional, which I think would make for an absolutely fascinating cultural exchange uh, as West Virginia and Texas A&M are the top two seeds and the three and four seeds are Duke and Fordham. So this is West Virginia's first time hosting, and I'm sure the environment there is going to be crazy. Uh, West Virginia fans absolutely know how to get after it, and I think they're going to be very excited this weekend. Their team's had a great year, led by big right-hander, and I do mean big right-hander, Alec Manoa. Uh, if Lodolo isn't the best pitcher in the country, it very well might be Manoa, and there's a good chance that he's going to match up with uh, you know, if West Virginia and AM can both win their first games, they would match up. Manoa potentially then would match up with either Azalacy, a uh, top 10 to 15 type in the draft next year, or John Duxakis, uh, who is a good solid draft prospect in his own right this year. So could be a big time pitching matchup in Morgantown with a ton of fans on Saturday night if both. West Virginia and A&M can win on Friday to make that happen. Feels like Doc Sackis has been at A&M for about 15 years. He has been there for a long time. It does feel like that. It's just three years, though, but he's just been so good, so consistent. And at the SEC tournament, where a lot of people have eyes on him, he does not like to give up hits. I think it's like 15 scoreless innings for him and Hoover the last two years. All right. Uh, down to Greenville, North Carolina, where East Carolina hosts NC State, the Campbell Camels, and Quinnipiac. Now, this is an almost all North Carolina regional. I don't know what Quinnipiac is doing here, but uh, otherwise, North Carolina regional. And East Carolina is a very interesting team to watch. They have been to the most NCAA tournaments without, without getting to the College World Series, and their head coach, Cliff Godwin, desperately wants to make that happen for his alma mater. Uh, they've been building to this year's group for a while. It was a really highly ranked recruiting class when it came in, and it has turned out really well. They've got some power hitters, Spencer Brickhouse, Bryant Packard in the lineup, and Jake Agnos on the mound. All three of those guys are top five-round draft types. Uh, and 
they're going to be facing some tough competition, though. NC State's a really good team. Shortstop Will Wilson's a potential first-round pick. So it'll be a fun time out in Greenville, another regional where the environment going to be crazy. All right. Speaking of crazy environments, Louisville uh, is hosting Indiana, Illinois State, and Illinois Chicago. I think what I'm most fascinated here by is Indiana's offense is so home run dependent. Uh, they're a little bit like college baseballs and Yankees in that in that sense. Uh, kind of an all-or-nothing deal, and it has worked very well for them in the regular season. They won the Big Ten regular season title. How that's going to play in the tournament, we'll see. And they're going up against a really good pitching staff at Louisville. Reed Detmers, left-hander, Louisville's ace. He's a first-round pick next year in all likelihood. And uh, if they they would get matched up against Detmers, uh, there there could be a a big-time strikeout total for Reed Detmers. But also... Indiana just has to run into a couple and and make this a, a very interesting regional. All right. Lots of that Indiana team put together by Chris Lamonis, who is now at uh, Mississippi State. Uh, his Mississippi State Bulldogs host Miami, Central Michigan and Southern in the Starkville regional. So this is the first time for Mississippi State hosting a regional in their newly opened $68 million, yes, $68 million college baseball stadium. Uh, It is a palace, and it is amazing, and the environment is going to be absolutely raucous this weekend. Um, Mississippi State, Ethan Small on the mound, uh, SEC Pitcher of the Year, potentially the best pitcher in the country, um, you know, just from a a pure statistical standpoint this year. And then Jake Mangum, their center fielder. uh, You'll hear about him a lot if you tune into these broadcasts. He's the SEC's all-time hits king. Uh, He's a senior. He's really a throwback type player, uh, just a a grinder at the top of the order that really makes life difficult for opposing, uh, opposing teams. All right. And they're paired with the Stanford Regional. Lots of complaining from West Coast uh, College Baseball Twitter about uh, West Coast teams not getting their due. Uh, My suggestion would be maybe stop throwing away 100 outs a year on bunts uh, and maybe you'll get more teams into the regional. But uh, Stanford hosts UCSB, Fresno State and Sacramento State. Yeah, it's the All-California Regional, and I, to the point of the West Coasters who are upset that all of their teams are bunched together, I don't know, it's called a regional for a reason. This happens in Texas and in Florida uh, a lot of years. There's almost an All-Carolina Regional this year. So anyway, I digress. Um, this is an interesting regional, should be very competitive. Three conference champs plus Stanford, which finished up as finished as the runner-up to UCLA in the Pac-12 Fresno State uh, has won the Mountain West, and I think they're underseeded as a three seed. They've got a lot of talent there. And then UCSB won the Big West, first Big West title for them since 1986. And the Chos have some big-time talent, um, Jim Rome's favorite team. Uh, we'll see if they can make some noise and make it three years in a row that a Big West team goes up to the Stanford Regional and wins it. All right. And our final super regional pairing, Chapel Hill, uh, UNC Chapel Hill hosts Tennessee, Liberty and UNC Wilmington. So in this one, you've got North Carolina, uh, the ACC tournament champs coming in hot. They won four straight in Durham to be able to host this regional. Michael Bush, uh, their first baseman turned outfielder, big time slugger, uh, should be a first round pick next year. He was the uh, ACC tournament MVP. So he's coming in hot as well. Uh, Tennessee brings in some big time pitching. And they're in a regional for the first time since 2005. So they're ending a big drought. We'll see how they respond to that environment. Uh, But right now, I I 
feel like this sets up pretty well for the Tar Heels. All right. And the the last regional, Atlanta, Georgia Tech hosting a regional along with Auburn, who uh, leads the nation in weird ways to lose high profile <laughs> games. Uh, Coastal Carolina, uh, recent uh, national champions and Florida A&M. I, it's an interesting regional. Georgia Tech uh, missed the tournament completely the last two years. The last, I think, three times they've hosted a regional. It has not gone well for them. Uh, so they're they're trying to exercise some bad history here. Uh, Auburn should be uh, have the pitching to match up with Georgia Tech, but they're banged up right now. So we'll see how that works out. And then Coastal Carolina has been up and down all year. It looks like they're on an up right now, having just won the Sun Belt tournament. This is going to be a very offensive regional. All three of these teams, big time bats, a little light on the arms this time of year. So it might just come down to who slugs the most home runs between those three teams to to get out of Atlanta. All right. Well, I wanted to spend the entire hour of today's podcast talking about this, but they gave me 20 minutes. Uh, but you have given us an hour's worth of information in that 20 minutes with time to spare. Uh, so give me a, a national championship pick if you have one uh, already. Yeah. So I. Before the season, I picked Florida State, and I really want to hang tough with that pick, uh, which was a bit of a sentimental pick at the time. I've admitted all along. Uh, It's hard to do that, though, with Florida State in Athens. So I am kind of flipping my pick to UCLA. Now, it's rare that the number one overall seed wins this tournament. It's just one of those things in baseball. Uh, you know, you see it at the MLB level too. The best team often does not win. Uh, but this UCLA team, like I mentioned, best pitching staff in the country. They defended a really high level. Those are two things that play really well in this tournament. And I think this team has enough offense that when they get to Omaha and face other high-powered pitching staffs, that they'll still be able to score enough runs that, that they can have some success uh, in the College World Series this year. All right. So who who's somebody who's not on the top line who you think could make a deep run? Not on the top line. So, I mean, I, I think when when you, we start looking at this, I, I my eyes go, uh, you know, to a team like an A&M uh, because I like their pitching, but I don't like the matchup. So it, it's a hard thing to do. You got to align the, the, the team with the decent matchup because A&M, if they won in Morgantown, would have to go and play in Nashville. And, and that's just not a, a, a good scenario for them. So I think that, um, you know, I like the the potential of a, of a team like North Carolina State to, to get there. I, I feel like that could be an advantageous matchup. I don't love their pitching staff, but I think that they defend at a really high level. They have some offense. And if they get hot at the right time, you know, they, this is a, an older group and they, they might be able to fare pretty well in the in the tournament. This is another school that's had some weird and tough losses, tough outs in the the postseason recently, too. Yes, uh, and that extends throughout all sports. Uh, NC State uh, stuff is uh, is a very real deal, and but I, I think that what they have there is an older group and, and a kind of favorable draw here. So I, I really like that pairing. Um, unfortunately for them, they lost out on the chance to get a home regional, probably when North Carolina won the ACC tournament. So that that puts them in a tougher spot. And then I'll also add, you mentioned Dallas Baptist earlier. I also like this DBU team. Uh, again, an older group. They pitched at a pretty high level. And so I if they can get out of I've been waiting I, for I've been waiting for the DBU Omaha run for like five years now and it hasn't happened yet. Dan Hefner, their coach, is an absolute stud. So I mean it we'll we'll see. It's a tough draw to go to Lubbock, but if they get out of there, you never know. All right. Um so I mean, my plans for this weekend, I'm going to be spending uh, Friday and Saturday quad boxing. 
um, you know, watching the the ESPN coverage. Who are who's a, a fun team that you know if if our listeners want to give it a shot, a uh, team to to look out for that that uh, will provide entertainment this this first weekend of the tournament. Well, I mentioned Arizona State when we talked about the Baton Rouge Regional, and and I think that that's absolutely a team uh, to look at because of what Torkelson and Bishop provide. I, I think that you know when you look down to to the four line, there there are some fun teams down there as well, and I think Cincinnati. Um, they are in a regional for the first time since 1974. They blitz through the American Athletic Conference tournament, and so I, I think that uh, you know that that could be a fun fun thing to watch. Just a team, you know, kind of breaking into the tournament for the first time in a long time, and uh, you know, they, there's some talent there, and they're they're playing very hot right now. They have been for the last couple months, and so I, I feel like if you're if you're looking for a scrappy four seed, uh, Cincinnati or, or maybe a Sacramento State could be uh, your underdog to root for. All right. Um, where are you going this weekend? I am going to Athens and Atlanta. Going to double up. Uh, probably going to spend a little more time in Athens, having seen the the pairings. Um, so we're we're uh, hoping for some good weather in Georgia this weekend. All right. Uh, so if you see Teddy on on TV, uh, be sure to to tell him on Twitter at Ted Cahill. Uh, thanks for for joining me. I wish we could do this every week, but unfortunately, <laughs> I am restricted by you know what my bosses want to cover. So thanks for for giving me twenty minutes here. Absolutely, gotta gotta fight the man for college I'm baseball. I'm trying, man. Can. I'm trying. <laughs> All right. Have fun this weekend. Thanks for for coming on. Thanks, Mike. So we're back, and uh, as Bobby pointed out during the break, the name of the show is The Ringer MLB Show, so we have to go back to talking about Major League Baseball. I am incredibly disappointed about that, but incredibly excited to be joined by Ben Lindbergh. Ben, how you doing? Yeah, thank you very much for getting through the NCAA preview fast enough to have me on. I appreciate it. I didn't know if that would happen. Well, I know you're uh, you're disappointed about your Missouri Tigers uh, being oh, yes. on the wrong side of the bubble. So crushed. Uh, yeah, it's it's a huge bummer. But uh, uh, back to the the world of professional baseball. The Oakland Athletics have won ten games in a row. Ben. How the hell did this happen? <laughs> yeah, I mean, technically, they've won more than 10 in a row. They've won, I don't know, 10 and four-fifths in a row, let's say, because they have not been defeated in their last 11 games, but they had a suspended game in there against the Tigers that they were winning in the seventh inning, and that won't be picked up until September. So they haven't actually lost a game in two weeks now, which is pretty impressive. I actually picked the A's as my flop team in our contractually mandated uh, preseason previews prediction post, and I wasn't the only one. And it wasn't because I thought the A's would be bad. It was just that they were coming off such a big leap from the previous season. They were 22 wins up last year from what they were the previous year when they'd actually been my pick for surprise team. And whenever you see a team that takes that big a jump and also has one of the best one-run records of all time at 31-14 and and has this historic bullpen performance, you kind of expect them to come back to earth. And they did to start the season, but lately they have been playing like the A's of old. So over the last two weeks, they have been the second best hitting team in baseball after the Twins, of course, who are unstoppable. And they've also had the best bullpen win probability added over that period too. So they've gone back to basically last year's formula of mashing and having a a bullpen that seals every win. 
And this is still a really good defensive team too, which is one of those things that we know, but maybe don't appreciate as much as we should. Only the Astros have a higher defensive efficiency this year. That's the percentage of balls in play that the team has converted into outs. Last year, the A's had about the same defensive efficiency and led the major leagues. So that's this sort of subtle force that they have going for them, where you look at some of the numbers and you think, oh, that's not that great. But then you realize that there's this hidden hand of defense making everyone look a little bit better. And obviously, Matt Chapman has a lot to do with that. It's almost comforting to, to see the A's coming out of nowhere because I, I had essentially just written them off because they were right it, before this winning streak started. They were six games under 500 and you're like, you know, well, maybe they they get back up to, to 500. But the Astros are so far in front. Yeah. You know, you wonder if it's possible for them to, to chase, you know, to chase down a gap that big. And I still don't think it is, but they have pulled even in the wildcard race. Now they're tied with the Red Sox, another resurgent team that is in the race right now. So you have to take them seriously, I think. And, you know, they're missing Chris Davis still. And Matt Chapman, who's been on a tear lately, actually just said recently that Chris Davis is their best player and they need him back. And got news for you, Matt. You are the yeah, best player on the team. It's very gracious of you to, to give that honor to someone else. But yeah, it's Matt Chapman. But they could use Chris Davis back. He was the one who was hitting early in the year when the A's were losing a lot. And now the A's are winning a lot and he's not there. And and he hadn't been hitting before then for a while. So it's kind of a strange season. But when I picked them to be my flop team, I said the the thing that they had going for them is this thin field of second wildcard contenders. And I wrote that they could easily come back to the pack by 10 wins and still be in the race because mm. there just weren't a lot of contenders. And so far, that's what's happening. Sure enough, so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I, I don't see them as a threat to the Astros. I don't see anyone as a threat to the Astros. But at this point, I think you have to kind of consider them a wildcard contender. Yeah, and I mean, they did that thing. This is one of my favorite things in, in baseball because like the we talk about regressing to the mean, you mm-hmm. know, and that just means playing to your true talent after overperforming or underperforming. But uh, my, one of my favorite things in baseball is when a, a team or a player regresses to the mean all at once. That yes. like you know <laughs> that uh, remember like Dan Ugly. My favorite example of this, and I, I'm sure I've talked about this on the pod, is years ago Dan Ugly was hitting like 190 and had a third, and then had a 30 game hitting streak, mm-hmm. and uh, and everything and you know everything looked exactly the way uh, we would have predicted. I mean, but like you said, they are right in the wild card. Um, this is a uh, you know, I, I guess a, a good thing about playing in a league that's half completely dog shit teams that are tanking <laughs> yeah. uh, because you can make up a lot of ground at once. Yeah, well, they've made the AL more interesting because for a while there, as we sort of expected coming into the season, it was a fun NL race everywhere you look or almost everywhere. But the AL, as you say, was just not a whole lot of fun. And now at least you have another team in that mix. So whoever is not at the top of the central, the Twins have this commanding double digit lead right now. So Cleveland's kind of in the wild card race and then Boston's kind of in the wild card race. And of course, you have the A's and the Yankees or the Rays and the Yankees battling things out. Out in the East. So it's not quite as uninteresting as it could have been. I feel like the A's getting back into this race is really crucial when it comes to actually giving American League people something to watch for the rest of the season. Right. So obviously we don't think they're going to, you know, finish the season. What is that? 137 and 25. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're going <laughs> to lose again, but there is uh, optimism that they are peaking right before they're going to get a lot of help. Uh, yes. when they're getting pitchers back because Jarrell Cotton, who uh, 
had Tommy John surgery is supposed to come back sometime uh, in June. Uh, Sean Manaya in July, Marco Estrada in June, uh, Jesus Lazardo, who I think was on on pace to be on the opening day roster and uh, maybe be their best pitcher this season. I uh, right. should be back before too long. So, you know, there's the, the starting rotation is as ever a combination of guys who are, uh, out pitching their peripherals and guys who you don't trust to get through the lineup more than twice, but you know, that could, that could change. Right. Yeah. That will be a big help. And and it's been a help also to get Matt Olson back this year. He's hasn't been great, but he's been decent and they got him back uh, right at the end of the first week of May. So that may have contributed to this offensive tear, but you're right. I mean, they were counting on the bullpen to do a lot as it did last year and kind of going through the season with this cobbled together starting rotation, which obviously worked last year, but it looked like they might not need to do that to the same extent this year, except then everyone got hurt. And the bullpen, as I mentioned lately has been very clutch and on the whole this season their bullpen trails only the Yankees in Fangraph's war which is partly a reflection of the fact that it pitches a lot of innings because their starters don't go deep into games but also they've been pretty effective until lately they hadn't been quite as clutch as they had been but the peripherals are there that's a pretty solid group and they didn't do a whole lot to reinforce their roster over this past offseason and that was one of the reasons I was worried about them because you are always kind of concerned about an outlier bullpen performance and the bullpen is kind of the one area of the team that is the least consistent from year to year but I think this is still a pretty deep and good group and if they now get some starters back so that they won't have to work that pen quite as hard that would be pretty pretty nice too it'd be good if if they actually did manage to contend late into the year if they weren't staring at a wild card game where you're talking about doing a bullpen game which you know is not always the worst idea but the way that they went into it last season did not inspire a whole lot of confidence so if they actually had a starter that you'd want to give the ball to in a wild card game, that would really be nice. Well, I mean, if at this point it looks like if they went into the wild card game, they'd be going to Tampa Bay, so everybody would be pitching. Uh, <laughs> Possibly, yeah. You know, I mean, at least Tampa Bay has like a Cy Young winner on its team. That's but true. <laughs> I don't know who would take the ball right now for for the A's. I guess I mean Frankie Montas has been has been good and. Chris Bassett has been cutted. It's always kind of these unexpected guys in the A's rotation. Yeah. Um, we were we were talking about great uh, college baseball names in the break. Uh, we would be remiss if we mentioned uh, the Oakland A's without discussing uh, North Carolina Tar Heels legend Sky Bolt, who has gotten, <laughs> sure. uh, gotten some run uh, throughout the course of the season. Um, yep. So... Before we we wrap up the show, this is actually Zach Cram's idea, which we're stealing because we need content. Mm-hmm. Uh, he suggested that since it's Memorial Day and this is, or well, it was Memorial Day recently, and that's the part of the season where you start being able to uh, draw conclusions about what's what's happened the season that we would take the six division leaders and draft them in order from most likely to stay there by season's end to least likely. So I will, we'll do this real quick uh, and I'll let you go first. All right. I will take the Dodgers, I think toss up for me one and two, but I'll take the Mm -hmm. Dodgers. Yeah. Dodgers who are, I mean, eight games up helps. Yeah. And none of the teams that chasing them are that good. You know, I'm not that, not that confident in the Diamondbacks. The Padres are fun and feisty, mm-hmm. and I think you know they're sort of rounding down to about the the median projection, which is you know must watch television and a lot better than last year, but maybe still another year, yeah, you know, 
two at the most away from uh, really putting it all together. Mm-hmm. Um, number two, I'm going to pick the the Astros. Yes. Uh, as good as the the A's have been um, over the course of the past two weeks or so, I mean, Houston, I, I think I've said from the beginning of the season, I think they're the best team in baseball, and nothing they've done this season has uh, has led me to reconsider that position. I agree. So for the next pick, all these other teams, five of the six are teams that I predicted to win their division and and was certainly not alone in doing so. They were probably the consensus favorites. But the one exception, of course, is the AL Central, where even though Cleveland essentially didn't do anything all winter, I still thought they had enough to ride it out. And right now they're trailing the Twins by 10 games. I think I'm taking the Twins. I mean, I know it's not yet June and you kind of stick with the favorite in most cases. But a 10-game lead is a lot to surmount, especially when you have a team that's been playing as well. Like Legitimately, underlying talent seems really to have taken a step forward for the Twins. And I think Cleveland will be better from here on out. And and the Twins have to be worse, just guys regressing. But I just don't know that that would be enough to make up that gap. So, yeah, Twins, number three. Yeah, not only is 10 games just a huge gap even this early in the season, I— we, I think we've seen enough from these two teams to revise our estimate of, of what the Twins are substantially yes. up and Cleveland substantially down. And right. I don't know that that's true for any, you know, like you said, this is really the only division with a, a shocking leader. Certainly nobody projected that they'd be up by 10, even, you know, those of us who, who did uh, think they could give Cleveland a ride. Um, I'm going to, I don't know if this is the order you'd pick them, but I think I would take the Yankees. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's a two game lead over Tampa, uh, six and a half over Boston, which I don't think is, is enough to be completely certain. Like, you know, yeah. they could be chased down by either of those teams in the next four months. I just think they're, you know, the worst has to be past them. Yes, right. I would think so. <laughs> um, and I just think they're a lot better, uh, than either of the other two division leaders. So given that they have a head start and it's only a two game head start, but it's the biggest lead of, of any of the three remaining teams. Yeah, uh, so they they feel like an obvious number four pick for me. I had the Yankees next too. It's I mean, these last three are essentially a toss up for me. I mean, yeah. it's it's so close because the leads are small, and also in each of these divisions, there's at least one team right. that you could Any, easily. I would envision. say as many as three or four in in some of these divisions. Yeah, I mean, certainly the Rays and the Red Sox should give the Yankees a, a run for their considerable amount of money. I I don't know. I I kind of went with them or would have gone with them for the same reason you did, which I think is that they're the best team of these remaining division winners, but they probably have the best challenging teams in their division too so i wouldn't be comfortable if i were a yankees fan but you just have to think like surviving the incredible number of injuries that they have incurred thus far and they played so well and of course when they get all these guys back that doesn't mean that everyone else who has sustained them will continue to play just as well as they have but yeah you would think i mean true talent wise they're getting better not worse the example I was going to use uh, might not be a good example, but like the the 2017 Nationals who uh, endured a lot of uh, injuries to key players down the stretch. You know, Bryce Harper was hurt that year. Um, they rebuilt, rebuilt their bullpen on the fly. Adam Eaton uh, took an injury. And the guys who, you know, like you said, who filled in, you know, didn't disappear when those players started coming back. And, you know, for right. all the good it did them in the playoffs. But, you know, I, I think that is a, a good reason to, to feel optimistic about the Yankees down the stretch. 
All right. Second to last pick here. I'm going to go with the Cubs. I think I'm not confident in the Cubs. They were my preseason pick to win the NL Central. Right now, they're clinging to a half game lead over the Brewers. And I certainly think the Brewers could contend and could even beat the Cubs. I, I don't really see. I mean, the teams behind them, the Pirates, I think, are 500 right now, but they're a mirage. I mean, they're run differential. I don't know how they are at 500. You could say the opposite for the Reds, who I was are gonna under say, yeah, 500. Yeah, if you're going to write off the, the Pirates, <laughs> yeah. the Reds aren't that much farther back, and I think they're no, a better team. I do I do too. And and the Cardinals, I, I think, were one of my preseason wildcard picks, so I, I don't expect them to fall out of it either. I just kind of think that the Cubs are better, and I don't know that they have room to add at the deadline. They certainly maintained that they had no room to add all winter. Will that change if they're in this really tight race a month from now? One would hope, one would think. But yeah, I just kind of think the the underlying talent there is still, I mean, Chris Bryant was my MVP pick, and uh, lately he has recovered and has really been hitting. So I, I kind of think that they can outlast the Brewers, but I'm not super confident in it. Yeah, I I would have taken the Phillies fifth. I mm-hmm. you know, the like these last three are so close right now and the the pool of contenders are are so deep that they are kind of a toss up. Um but I think I mean half a game is nothing. Yeah. And I think the Cubs have a higher quality have more and better teams in a position to chase them or to, to chase them down than the Phillies do. I'm still not sold on the bets who are five games back and and still, you know, I still think they're immensely talented. And I still, you know, I, I sort of threw this out there that maybe, uh, you know, they make a managerial change and get hot. You know, I think that's, that's still a possibility down the stretch. Um, but, you know, I think the Brewers and Cardinals are both better than the Braves and the, are, are both better than both of the Braves and Mets. Uh-huh. Uh, and so and you mentioned the Cubs maybe not having, you know, it, it's not even a matter of will or, or money. Like, I don't know what prospects they're going to throw into a true a, a trade, you know, at, at the deadline. They sort of, you know, I think they they did a great job of building that farm system and using them, you know, in terms mm-hmm. of bringing in homegrown players who won them a world series and, you know, and using the rest of their, their prospects and, in, in trade. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know where the Avenue is for them to make a big move. Whereas the Phillies still have some more prospect up to deal from if they so choose. Um, but it's close, you know, I, there's, I think there is a drop off. You know, I was just looking at fan graphs, the Yankees, they have the Yankees at, uh, close to 60% to win the division. I think that's, they're about a toss-up, yeah. um, in my mind. Yankees versus the field. Uh, Fangraphs has the Braves as um, favorites over the Phillies to chase them yeah. down, and the Cubs are also around sixty percent. Um, but you know, I I just think that uh, I'm less confident in those two teams than I am in the Yankees. Yeah, I saw that the odds had the Braves over the Phillies. I I definitely would not have them that way. I do. I think wouldn't that either. The I don't think better, that's but... unreasonable though. No, it's and, not. And you know, and that's kind of why I had the Phillies last on my board here, just right. because I, I do think the Braves could make that run, and and I think the Mets are decent, and I thought the Nationals were good. <laughs> I guess guess I was wrong, but who you knows? were all wrong about yes. that. <laughs> right. So, but anyway, we have some races here. There's there's some stuff to watch here. I mean, you you're kind of worried about at least in the AL just having the favorites run away with things, but I think so far it's been encouraging in terms of pennant races and actual reasons to tune in down the stretch and encouraging in that not not just pennant races but like but multi-team pennant races like in the in the the al east and the nl east and central there's three or more teams that are in it certainly right now we'll probably 
remain in it up until the trade deadline. Um, and even the even the AL Central, which is the widest division, like I'm, you know, I, we we talked talked the Twins up uh, quite a bit over the past few weeks, and I think they're really good. But I'm still like sort of keeping one eye on that situation to make sure, you know, what happens when they when they cool off a little bit, you know, does yeah. that team keep up the intensity? Do they make another move? Certainly they have, you know, they have the farm system. They have um, some internal options. They would make sense as a landing spot for uh, Craig Kimbrell and Dallas Keuchel, who yes. are slowly fading out of the back to the future picture. Um, <laughs> no. They're still I, like working out there. So, you know, they still have to, moves to make. Every time I go to MLB.com, it seems like there's a new article about uh, contenders keeping an eye on Dallas Keuchel and Craig Kimbrell. It's, uh, it's sort of depressing. There's a lot of content coming out of that nothingness that is happening surrounding those two guys. Maybe it's a conspiracy. It could be. All right. Uh, so I hope that uh, some conspiracy emerges that will give us more content to to talk about. Your book's coming out next week. No. Yes, so we will. Uh, yeah, we'll talk about that next week. And, uh, you know, in the meantime, go order the MVP machine where wherever books are sold. Yes, please. Uh, and uh, we'll talk to you on release day. All right. Appreciate the plug. Talk to you then. That will just about do it for this week's episode of the Ringer MLB show. Thanks as always to Zach and Ben for joining me and to my special guests, Teddy Cahill. Uh, you can find his work at Baseball America and his takes on Twitter at Ted Cahill. Thanks to Bobby Wagner for editing this episode. Thanks to Dustin Pedroia, Mike Martin, and Matt Chapman for providing us with stuff to talk about this week. And thank you for listening. Enjoy the first weekend of the NCAA tournament and we'll see you next time. <laughs>